Welcome back to the podcast for local Christendom. My name is Aaron Ventura, and today I have a very special guest interview with campus preacher Keith Darrell. Keith, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. So I don't. I was thinking about this this morning. How long uh, we've known each other? Do you remember what year it was? Uh, maybe when we first met in in Idaho. I I would guess sixteen. I felt like I started to get to know you better eighteen. Um, yep. But I started coming through Idaho more often. Uh, actually, I can't remember when the Carpenters got there. Chris and Natalie Carpenter, if I'm allowed to use their name, uh, they started putting me up in 15. So I started usually spending two weeks up in Moscow between preaching at Pullman and preaching at the University of Idaho. Um, so I started spending two weeks there in the spring and two weeks there in the fall. And then I just kind of gradually got sucked into the orbit of Moscow. And uh, yes. <laughs> in 18, 18, I moved there. And, uh, and so I would guess 16. What, yeah, when, what year did you actually move, uh, uh, make that your home base? In 2018, Toby Sumter was working at Trinity Reformed Church. They offered me a role like six months out of the year to work mm-hmm. out from them at Trinity Reformed Church. And so I did that. And, um, and, and then, yeah, so 18 was kind of when it became my home. Okay, yeah. So for, for folks who don't know, um, I was in Moscow. I think I got there in 2016. So that might have been when we first met. But yeah, I don't remember really. Uh, I'm... I remember going on campus and more just like hearing about there. There's this open air preacher, and that was something that um, I was a gray friar, gray friar at the time, and we were supposed to do um, open air preaching ourselves. So I would uh, go up occasionally on campus and um, preach, not having any idea what I am doing. So uh, <laughs> I was like, here's a guy that he does this for a living. I'll go, I'll go watch him, and I was, I was impressed. Uh, when most people say uh, open air preacher their first instinct isn't, Oh, I bet that's a really nice guy. (laughs) They're scared about what, what, what it's going to say on the sign. (laughs) Yeah. I don't, I don't even want to tell people what I do because the imagery it conjures up. Everybody has Westboro Baptist church in mind or some horror story of some guy with a giant banner of somebody in flames and things like that. And so that's usually the operating assumption of uh, street preaching because it is kind of dominated by a very fundamentalist, uh, ministry by and large, uh, or maybe like a, a one-off Pentecostal uh, Pelagian theology and stuff like that is kind of the dominant uh, street preacher uh, type of guy, kind of a hyper evangelism, if that makes sense. Yeah. So would you just uh, call yourself uh, an evangelist or would you, what, what do you say when people ask you, you know, uh, what do you do? Yeah, I usually just say an evangelist. That way, uh, it, it, it's it's softer than street preacher. Doesn't immediately doesn't immediately put me on the defense of somebody. Because seriously, when I'd say, "Oh, I do campus preaching or open air preaching," everybody immediately wants to tell me some horror story they had. Do you know what I mean? It's almost as if every doctor has ever, if every doctor butchered somebody, and then you tell somebody your doctor, like, "Oh yeah, my last doctor butchered me." So he's like, "All right, great." So I usually just say I do evangelism on college campuses. I'm an evangelist. Do evangelism on college campuses, and then when they ask me what that looks like a little bit, then I'll start to lay out the details of, you know, when you're in college, was there a guy preaching in front of the library or preaching in front of the union? And I'll be like, that's, that's kind of what I do. So, yeah. So how many years now have you been doing this and what were you doing before you became an evangelist? Yeah. So the first time I did it was 2000. I was at Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis and uh, I was converted in 93 and I saw a guy preaching in front of the student uh, union. And he was kind of wild. He was calling people whores and whoremongers. And uh, I had no idea what a whoremonger was. It just didn't sound good. And he kind of played up the image of, uh, he, 
there was, you know, one of the guys called himself Bible Jim. The other guy called himself Brother Jed. And so they all kind of almost had like nicknames. There's almost like a professional wrestling group. So I saw them doing it shortly after I was converted. And everybody, when I was in college, kind of protested them as far as believers. Like, that's not the way we do it. But I went home and I read through the scriptures, Acts particularly. I was like, well, this is what the apostles are doing. This is what Jesus is doing. And at the same time, I was involved with Camp Crusade for Christ. And we were reading um, about uh, Whitfield and Wesley. And I was like, well, these are what these men are doing. I was like, so the problem's not them publicly preaching. The problem is they're not actually preaching the gospel. Stop sinning is not the gospel. And that was basically what they were announcing was to stop sinning. So I, so that was kind of my introduction to it in 93. Finally in 2000, some guys had a ministry. They're like, Hey, we'll give you some money. Uh, and you can raise some money. Why don't you come under us, take a semester off of seminary, preach, see if you see if you can do it. And, um, and I was awful for like six weeks. You know what I mean? You, you, you go out there and I just thought I'd roll out there and get a crowd. And it's, it's kind of hard to get a crowd. It's kind of hard. to And even if you get one, then it's hard to sustain one. So it took me about six weeks. It was almost like learning to ride a bike. You fall off, you stink. And you, but you begin to realize, okay, this kind of works in getting a crowd. This doesn't work in getting a crowd. This helps keep a crowd. And so there is like an art to it, if that makes sense. You want to keep people's attention. And so when I first started, I think I was very much like, oh, I'll just have the Holy Ghost. And I'll just kind of, but uh, the Holy Ghost uses natural uh, things to uh, engage people with. So uh, 2000 was the first time I did it. I graduated from Covenant Seminary in 2003. In 2005, I moved to New York City and I worked in finance from 2005 to 2010. And the reason I did that in part was I need to know I could be successful at something else because this might not be the best thing to say. There's a sense in which ministry is just not it's a job, but it's not a job. It's not a it's, it's an odd job in a way. And one of the things that was difficult with the open air preaching is you kind of don't really have a product at the end of the day that you could turn around, look at and be like, okay, that's what I did. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so, you know, if if you're a a mom uh, nurturing your child, you may not day in, day out, have a great appreciate what you're doing. The next thing you know, the kid's grown up. You're like, oh, everything I've been doing every day is building towards this, but you don't always see the instant gratification of say building something or making something. So I moved to work in finance just to know I could do something else. It was either Seattle or New York. I figured, well, if you can be successful in New York, you can kind of be successful anywhere. So moved to New York City and, you know, by the grace of God, it worked out well. And then in 2009, I had a group of people from various walks of my life. I'll say, hey, we think you're wasting your life in finance. Go preach. And Internally, I wanted to go preach. Externally, people wanted me to go preach. And so uh, starting in 2000, April of 2010, so almost 14 years ago, I mm. left that job and been traveling and preaching full time. Wow. So uh, there are, I know because I've heard most of them or many of them, I know there are many stories uh, you could tell us. One of the reasons why um, I wanted to interview you was to get kind of just a pulse of the nation. Uh, we're you know going into an election year. We're in a post-COVID, post-Trump, but maybe pre-Trump uh, <laughs> world <laughs> world right now. Um, and I'm really interested in uh, what are... So you're interacting with primarily college students um, most of the day. It's been a little while since I, I've been in college. And I'm interested to, to hear your reflections on how things have changed within the last, you know, five, 10 years Um amongst that demographic, because that's really, I mean, that's the future moms and dads. That's the future of our nation right there is um, these students. And you have, um, you're an interesting uh, data point. Uh, You're more than a data point, Keith, but um, in that very few people 
spend their days doing what you do, traveling literally across the whole country and then uh, arguing slash preaching to uh, uh, college students all day long. So um, maybe just some general reflections on the current state of uh, college students in America. Yeah, the, the thing that's interesting to me is in the last 14 years, so you, um, if I break it out a little bit, you, you, you had a couple clear turning points. I, I, I'd have to think about it more, but I, I generally think of three pivot points. I think it was 14 or 15 was the Obergefell decision, which was the Supreme Court ruling on gay marriage. Um, and that was kind of one domino that sent the – so before that, everybody kind of was okay with homosexuality because – I mean, you have even straight people are being raised on pornography and stuff like that. So sexual perversions are kind of like run of the mill at this point. Um, and so you already had people who are already kind of there on the issue. Um, but I would just say there has been a shift on that issue from them having like obviously cultural clout to kind of becoming normalized. And with it becoming legal in that way, we now became the de facto bigots in a much more systemic way so you know if you're pro in their book this isn't my book in their book if you're pro jim crow laws and then jim crow's overturned and you're still maintaining jim crow laws you're just the bad guy you know what i mean and so we're the people still holding to jim crow in their book so we became the bad guy much more systematically at that point and so the the bigotry scale radically increased. So I was already kind of bad for believing homosexuality was wrong, but then there was an uptick. And then at the end of 2015 and the spring of 16, actually, I can still very vividly remember the day I was at Washington State University. I even texted a buddy of mine. I was like, hey, not normally scared to preach, really scared to preach today. And within minutes, you're like, oh, it's on the day. And there was just hundreds of kids and it was all trans and it was all the beginning of the trans stuff. And that was another major domino that just came in like a flood out of nowhere. You had the North Carolina bathroom bill going on around that time. Uh, you actually had Rachel, Rachel like Dolezal up in Spokane, I think, who is a white woman pretending to be black with the NAACP. And it's, and then, but right before that was Bruce Jenner. And I, it's one of those things I, I feel like if you pay attention to the news, the Lord sits in heaven and he laughs. So while everyone's praising Bruce Jenner for being woman of the year, they begin to get upset that a white woman claimed to be black in Spokane. I was like, I think the white woman has more in common with a black woman than Bruce Jenner does a woman. But so that was the spring of uh, 16. I actually got punched that day on campus by a woman, fortunately, because it kind of showed the that we all know that there's a difference between men and women. I can't I'm not allowed just to punch your back. Um, so we all know there's differences. And then obviously COVID became another major domino that has happened. And and within those little floods, what you end up having was the rise of the new atheists, um, which were like your Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris's. And that's almost completely gone. They're, they're, that kid almost does not exist anymore on campus. Um, everybody is kind of much more in the trajectory of being queer. Um, uh, yeah, kind of sexual chaos is, is kind of the norm today. But, but the thing I, I found interesting post-COVID, for one year after COVID, I kind of would almost describe it as like demonically insane. Like that first year after COVID, we'd have monster crowds, but it really was kind of Paul and Ephesus. One would yell one thing, one would yell another, and they had no idea why they were there. They just knew that the guy in the middle with the, the short white guy with the Bible is the bad guy. That's all, that's all they knew. They couldn't, they couldn't tell you anything that I said. They'd probably say he was a racist, sexist, homophobe. But, but as far as any actual content I said, they wouldn't be able to tell me. But then about a year ago, I noticed another pivot, which I think is good. And in our circles, uh, we should at some level be able to grasp it. Um, 
and it, it's it's kind of preaching towards the aspect of fatherlessness and fatherhood and those sorts of things. And um, I'm amazed at how many people listen, especially LGBT people and all that sort of jazz. And so the the main thing in my head that we're kind of dealing with right now is the for good or ill, it's the total rise of therapeutic. Everybody has a mental illness. Um, and so how do we go about preaching the gospel to the perception being my primary problem is mental illness? Um, and and so how do we communicate the gospel to those people? How does God relate to mental illness sort of stuff? Um, that's kind of one of the main things I've seen pivot over the past year. And the day that it pivoted for me, I was preaching at Kansas and there was a girl with the blue hair and just haranguing me for a couple hours, like literally. And I was just so tired of her. And the thing that was interesting is she said, the Bible's unjust because you can stone an adulterer. And at that point, and I believe what I'm about to say, but I said it because I wanted her to go to what, go away. And I just said, you know what? I think it's a great thing you can stone an adulterer. Think about what an adulterer does. If we're willing to put to death a man that commits treason against the state, how much more do a man commits treason against his family? He rips apart his wife, rips apart his kids, rips apart another wife, another, another family. And the whole social order suffers uh, because that man was selfish. He should be put to death. And she just shut up, sat down, listened for the next two hours. And I was kind of like, all right, well, we're we're close to we're close to an issue. And from that point on, I started preaching more on fathers and fatherhood. And I've been amazed at how much that communicates. And if you put yourself in our, you know lens of theology and kind of social order and family and stuff like that, it's one of those things that makes sense that if dad goes sideways, everything goes sideways, uh, kind of under him. And so that's, uh, and so a lot of the apologetic now, interesting is no longer whether or not God exists, but is God good? So if they're doing theology through their father and their father is abusive, well, is God, the father abusive, what is God, the father like? And so, um, that's probably been one of the main pivots over the past year that I've, uh, enjoyed is, is cause you're kind of like in many ways, very practical in interacting with people. And even kind of a, a funny thing that I would say, <laughs> excuse me, pre COVID, and the way people respond to it now. So pre-COVID, um, I would always, you know, and it's, and this is a sort of like rhetoric you kind of throw out, just kind of keep people engaged. I'd say, all right, little pro tip for you women. If a guy on this campus asks you out, you ask, the first question you want to ask him is if he looks at pornography. If he says yes, you tell him no. But if he says no, then you can say you can talk to my dad. And pre-COVID, they would all get like, why do I need to talk to my dad? And all the women would get upset and get mad at me and stuff, uh, and stuff like that. But if I say that now... They might ask, well, why they would ask in a much more sincere way, like, oh, why should they talk to my dad? I was like, because you want to make him jump through some hoops. You have some value and some dignity and honor, and you're not low-hanging fruit. So you make you want to make him jump through some hurdles to get to you. And it almost is like it's almost like refreshing to them in a way to kind of hear that sort of thing. And that's those are the sorts of interesting things to me that take place pre-COVID, saying, you know, now you can tell them to go talk to your dad was always met with like I'm an independent woman. I don't need any of that stuff. Whereas now when you say it, you know, you still have some women that push back, but I feel like generally even that sort of comment is well received. And mm. so th that's the sort of people that we're kind of evangelizing with people who are coming out of dysfunction and they are looking for an alternative. You know what I mean? Like what, what's another way? And one last comment um, is I, I kind of also just think everybody's exhausted. Like Trump hasn't even really got going and everybody already has exhaustion politically from Trump, from Biden, and even the upcoming election. Compared to 16, there's so much energy on campus uh, starting in 15 through 16. Um, this year, I, you know, I'm only two weeks or a week into the semester, but there's not the same sort of gusto that there was in 16 by any means. So I feel like family and exhaustion are kind of two aspects of people that we're interacting with. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because there is 
uh, with perversion, especially sexual perversion, just a law of diminishing returns, which is why, uh, you know, guys who start with stuff that is, you know, more softcore often end up doing things or looking at things that they would never have imagined before because your heart just gets so much harder and harder. But at some point you hit this like burned out point and it seems like culturally we're starting to um, reap the harvest of sexual anarchy. And it's like, it's so tired. Um, everyone's doing it now. It reminds me of that old Mark Driscoll uh, line at the beginning of one of Lecrae's songs, like way, way long ago, where he's like, you want to be rebellious? <laughs> if you want to be rebellious, don't get a, don't get a tattoo. You know, don't be smoking cigarettes. You want to be rebellious? Uh, read your Bible. Uh, you know, be a virgin if you really want to be a rebel, uh, you know, which is what you know, every young, young person wants to be. They want to buck the system. Well, the system now people are starting to recognize is so corrupt. The center cannot hold because there is no center anymore if you do not have have God. Um, I forget. Have you read uh, Jim Jordan's Crisis, Opportunity, and the Christian Future, that little pamphlet? I have not. So he makes uh, an interest. It's a very stimulating read and very short. Like you could read it in one sitting. But it reminds me very much of what you are saying. He has this reflection on how like uh, during the Reformation, um, under uh, the... Um, the corruption of the papacy and Roman, the Roman Catholic Church at the time, um, people were just guilty. And so for justification by faith to be recovered and the imputation of Christ's righteousness and the, the declaration of no condemnation uh, being declared in the common tongue and that, the, that kind of aspect of the gospel really connected and created a new civilization, um, you know, in, uh, Calvin's Institutes, in a certain sense, created a new civilization because it was uh, a certain purifying of the gospel. But it connected, Jordan says, because of um, this feeling of guilt that all these people had and could never, you know, this was Luther's whole thing, you know, can I really be approved of by God? But he says, um, kind of, the spirit is uh, moving on to something else because that's not really the issue now today. It is a lot more what you said. And he says uh, the churches that are growing and the angle of the gospel, of course, justification is still part of the gospel, but the gospel is much bigger. And he says the gospel for this day and age to people who are isolated, alone, broken families is that the church is your new family and that mm -hmm. God is your father. Christ Jesus is your older brother. The church is your mother and you have a huge family. So it's going to be hospitality, um, that kind of fellowship that's actually going to be the thing that evangelizes uh, the modern world. Um, does that sound kind of like what you are experiencing with uh, on campus these days? Yeah, I would, I would say very much so. And uh, someone like Rosaria Butterfield, I just think is very helpful in as any church wants to think through evangelism. Like, okay, maybe you're not going to stand out on campus and do what I do, but you have men and women that can cook and invite people over to their home. You know what I mean? And just spend time with people. And that's one of the best things we can do in a community. And and kind of intertwine all this is, um, I, I, I want to say, I think you're absolutely right. Like th this, this aspect of showing up and even preaching hell, like I never preach hell because first of all, 
everybody knows what the street preacher believes that people are going to hell. It's not like a shocker that I think, and it's same thing like with homosexuality. Like I'll talk about it if someone brings it up, but I never initiate it because everyone already knows what I believe. If anything, that God, that I'm not against them is what needs to be articulated because everybody already assumes I'm, I hate them, blah, blah, blah. So, um, so, so I, I totally agree regarding the, the statement regarding justification, because when you're still trying to get there, like no one's working, you know what I mean? Like no one's really working to appease God and, and justification <laughs> comes along as this fresh message um, at all. But this idea that creation's good, that's been one of the things I've been emphasizing that the, the world that God made was good and taken from Jesus' words from the beginning, it was not so. So the relationships that you're experiencing was not the way it was from the beginning. It's not the way it will be in the resurrection, but it's a thing that we experience here with sin. And that very real practical reality of our relationships, um, and from there, what it means to love God and love our neighbor, I, I just think is kind of one of our main inroads in communicating to people. And so I, I do think we want to um, obviously hold to justification by faith, um, but the person across the table from you is not Luther going up on his knees, holding the Eucharist and being like, Oh man, is God ever going to accept me? They're sitting there just like shattered. That's why they, they don't even know if they're men or women anymore. They're shattered relationally. Like I was at Nebraska and I kind of flippantly made a comment that like, and I was doing it a little bit to nettle. And I kind of realized like, Holy cow, because you know, I had like the land of misfit toys before me. And I made a comment. I was like, you know, the more I preach I do on campus, I realize how many of you come from abusive homes and like, it was like everybody's hand went up and it was just kind of like, all right, like how do you articulate the gospel to people coming out of that? Their primary issue is not justification by faith. They still need to be justified for their sins. It's not to negate their sins, but the, we're, we're trying to communicate to them from a world of chaos, like the gods that they're submitting to have been destructive, deceptive and all that sort of stuff. So anyway, that's in many ways what I'm trying to untie and who is Jesus Um and even tying a little bit, the end of Revelation I've been thinking about quite a bit is when the nations come in and, and the leaves are there for healing. Um, and even just that aspect of the gospel, like it's it's not primarily, or obviously there's always an aspect of our own guilt, um, but there's an aspect where the gospel heals us and Jesus comes along and heals us, the woman with blood and all that sort of stuff. So I, I think it, it, having a bigger picture, like you were saying, with what the gospel is, the gospel is not simply that Keith Darrell's justified and doesn't go to hell and gets to go to heaven. Um, it is kind of the restoration of the cosmos and it is the resurrection of the body and it is the incarnation. And so all those things that we hold, we articulate the incarnation, we articulate the resurrection, all that's tied with creation and kind of the, the fixing of creation is what's taking place with the gospel. And I do think that as we articulate that to people, um, it just, I, I just feel like it just makes a lot of sense to a lot of people and that the earth that the Lord made isn't simply a playground for heaven or hell. Cause like for a long time without the doctrine of creation, Heaven, uh, the creationist ground, it becomes a place where heaven, hell gets played out. And it, you're like, well, why would a God have ever made the earth if he's just going to jettison it and people go to heaven or hell? Where, so I think that strand of the gospel and the incarnation and the resurrection is something that communicates pretty thoroughly uh, to, to the students at this point. Yeah, you think of all of the types and shadows in the Old Testament that set up the coming of Christ and that, you know, Christ is judge, Christ is king, Christ is Lord. There are all of these aspects to who Christ is that we can contemplate that God gives us. And it seems like one of the places where our nation is in desperate need to hear about Christ is that Christ is the healer. He is the great physician. He is the one who is not afraid of our pain 
And what is mercy? Mercy is the removal of our defects and the healing of our sins. And I think the kind of like when the whole gay thing was, was a fad, it's like you have to distinguish between people who actually have same sex uh, temptations to sin versus people who are just kind of doing it for attention. And similarly, you know, if we have the divorce rates, the um, lack of religion, the lack of fear of God in the land, um, we should expect there to be all kinds of real mental illnesses, physical illnesses, the the insanity. You know, you read Deuteronomy, the curses, if you break covenant, and it's like, God's like, I'm going to give you all of these diseases that I put upon Egypt and ones that uh, you haven't even heard about yet if you guys do not return to me. And I think um, that message, uh, it's hard as a preacher because um, you don't want to like shoot victims who are actually (laughs) victims, but you also don't want to allow people to hide behind something fake, right? They're just lying to themselves that they're not actually a victim. They just are Uh, using that as a shield for their sins. Uh, And this is one of the constant things as pastors, as preachers that you have to do is like, how do you speak to those people when you're in a, in a, in a mixed crowd? Do you have any reflections? I know a lot of times for you, it's like, I'm going to say this thing. Oops, regret it. Uh, (laughs) Where there, where there are many words, sin is not lacking. And that is true for both of our vocations as people who have to use words all day long. Yeah, that's actually, I think that's one of the most difficult things. Like, I'm constantly trying to like read my crowd. I'm trying to read their bio language. I'm trying to read their eyes. And like, you are trying to figure out like what communicates one of the, you know, as a simple thing. And this is even for anybody in your congregation. If you're a Christian, you do mess up your speech. The best thing you can do is go to that person and apologize right off the bat. Like, and so ever so briefly, one of my favorite stories is I was at Montana state. There was a group that came up to me who are Christians or taking issue with my preaching, but as we're getting into discussion, this lady had her little child in a baby carriage and she's defending her husband struggling with pornography. So I just start rebuking all of them. And I was so frustrated. Like you guys are worried about like me preaching the gospel on campus and you guys are kind of all walking in disobedience. Like um, this guy came up behind me and said something. I thought he was with them and I rebuked him pretty hard. And he, the way he just sumped his shoulders turned, I was like, "Ugh, he wasn't with them. I remember walking off with my buddy, Sean, and just being like, man, I messed up. I shouldn't have said that to that guy. And uh, anyway, a local guy takes us out to dinner that night. And that guy walks into the restaurant. And uh, my back was to him. And Sean's like, hey, the guy from campus is here. And I, I look over at him. And he's just staring at me the whole way to his uh, chair. He sits down. I get up. And I walk down there. And he's just staring at me. And I went up to him. I was like, hey, I just uh, want to apologize to you. I was like, the way I spoke to you, I'm a Christian. I was like, the way I spoke to you was unbecoming of a Christian. And I asked you for forgiveness. And he just started crying at the table. It's like, man, I was so mad when I saw you. He's like, I can't believe you apologized. That was the last thing I was expecting. So all that to say, when you do mess up, the best thing you can do is apologize uh, because we do believe in the gospel and I need it. Uh, Aaron needs it. We all need it. Um, uh, But so when you're out there and you're reading them uh, and it is kind of like having a kid or like you're a football coach, some people you grab them by the face mask and you have to yell at them a little bit. And other times you just have to put your arm around the guy. Um, And so you're trying to read that subjectively. But oftentimes what I'm doing is the person who's peppering me with questions very rarely you read them. You're like, they're either sincere or they're not. When they're not sincere, everything I'm answering to them is not really for them. It's everybody else who's listening. Uh, because I'm like, this this is kind of pearls before swine if I'm really trying to be honest with this guy. So I'm going to assume the rest of the crowd's listening and I'm going to 
try to communicate with them and read their body language and pick up on them. Um, and that, that is, and then from there, the, the hard part is like when you've discussed an issue, again, sex comes up all the time on campus and you just kind of feel like, you know, what, I'm just exhausted of talking about homosexuality. Like, and someone wants to bring that up. You're just like, we've already discussed it. Maybe we'll talk about it later. And so you are trying to read your audience and it's simply reading, reading their body language. And, uh, and it, you know, you're kind of like this person's sincere, this person's not. And sometimes you uh, misread someone who is sincere and sometimes you misread someone who's not. And then when you do by the, honestly, by the grace of God, I feel like I've, the times I feel like I've really dropped the ball, I've been able to go back to that person and apologize. Um, but yeah, that's what you're trying to do subjectively is read the body language. And sometimes it's hard, uh, especially because it's, it's more of like a UFC fight. You know what I mean? It's kind of a free for all. So people can say whatever they want. Uh, they can come and go. It's not like a congregation where they're generally at least passively listening to you or actively listening, but they're sitting there. They're not engaged with you in the immediate verbal sort of thing. So standing there verbally, you have people who are, you know, either literally responding to you verbally, or you're just trying to read their body language. And then you try to build on those points. Like what, what communicates here? So. Yeah. So for folks who want to uh, kind of follow along with, with what you're doing, could you tell them first where they could maybe find more about you online? And then can you tell us just your general travel schedule um, upcoming? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, I am a campus preacher. So campuspreacher.com is my website, uh, campuspreacher.com, campuspreacher.org. I'm part of an organization called the Whitfield Fellowship. Uh, I also have those domain names. Um, but yeah, so if you want to find any basic information, uh, you can go to one of those websites. There's a contact form if you want to contact me. Um, I'm currently in Southern California. And depending on weather next week, I'll be in Southern California and then I'll begin to migrate east, uh, probably go to Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Louisiana. I'm going to try to get back to Moscow at some point. I'm going to. Yeah. So so right now, what's kind of laid out is through March. And that includes kind of that route. April's a little bit up in the air, but I do hope in May. Uh, the game plan is to be in Oregon and uh, like Western Washington, University of Washington, because they're on the quarter system. So April's a little bit up in the air. I'm going to try to get over to New York. Um, but right now, uh, that's kind of the, the tentative game plan is to uh, and then from there, just due to weather, it, 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 all, it can always change just because like if it's going to rain or something like that in Oklahoma, I'll go to Kansas or vice versa. You know, I'll try to get like an eight hour radius and head to where the weather is nice if I if I can get there in time. Yeah. And uh, we're going to try to get you if we can make our schedules align uh, when you are in Washington. If you do make it up this way, we'll try to um, have you out to, to preach for us. Uh, if people want to support your work, so uh, you're not in finance anymore. How could people financially support you? And then what are some ways that we can be praying for you as you go? Yeah, the, um, there's a there's a support tab. I believe there's a support link on there. You can give there, there's a couple of ways. PayPal, Tithely, and then uh, Zelle, I think, is like a your bank. You can donate through Zelle. Um, and so, yeah, we can always use financial support. It's one of those things. It's, it's a mixed bag. I was even reading Paul in uh, I think it's First Corinthians nine, where his boast is that he doesn't have to charge for the gospel. And uh, obviously, uh, you know, I'm on campus. It's and I want to just minister for free and just travel and preach. Um, but yeah, if, if people are able to financially support the mission, it is one of those things. If you, um, you know, you have money, you're honestly just able to do more things. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, and uh, so that's kind of the, and then, yeah, I think there's a contact form there. There's also like 
I, I sent out an update. I try to do it monthly. It's probably once every six weeks is the reality. Cause like it, one of the hard things in doing what I do, like who really wants to hear from me that often? You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, you don't need to hear from me every month, but at the same time, people who support it, they do want to hear what's going on. Um, then I thought there was another question that I, I'm, I'm kind of blank on. Uh, that, well, how can like, we be, be praying for oh, you? Praying. Yeah. Uh, boldness, uh, the spirit. Um, yeah. And just, uh, yeah, wisdom on interacting with people, uh, drawing people out. Oh, that was one of the, I don't remember if it was right before we started recording or not. But yeah, each semester you kind of, th- there is like a slight tinge on how do I type in, tap into this group of people? You know what I mean? So, um, and right now I'm, I'm a week into it and sometimes it takes a couple weeks, but right now I don't have my legs as far as, right, this is a thing that draws people out. So, you know, say when BLM was big, I would just start off with the question of, you know, here we are. San Diego State University, and you guys all over this campus, you have Black Lives Matter. Can any of you atheists, can any of you agnostics, can any of you Democrats tell me why Black Lives Matter without appealing to God? And then someone steps up and says something, and you kind of run the reductio on that. And and then next thing you know, you have a couple hundred people there interacting off of that issue. When Me Too was a big thing, I would kind of use the Me Too thing. Um, And that was actually a thing over the – sorry, this might go a little more than you want, but – even one of the things that's actually over the past year, it's really drawn people out is the concept of consent. Um, there's a, I can't remember the woman's name. She writes for Washington post and uh, she might be a Catholic, at least a, a liberal Catholic African-American girl. She wrote a book called, um, man, talking, re-talking sex or something, something about, but anyway, she's basically like 29 years old and basically how people, her and her friends are like, consent can't be the norm because we're all just, we've consented to bad sex. You know what I mean? So that's actually been one of the things I've been using to get a crowd is, you know, here we are at the university and then blah, blah, blah. Uh, and you guys have just put forward consent and then you just try to tease out the implications of consent. So anyway, all that to say wisdom on what is the issue this semester that draws people out and gets that discussion going. Cause it is almost semester to semester that these things pop up. Like you have six months shelf life of, Everybody's interested in BLM. Everybody's interested in Me Too. Everybody's interested in consent, like whatever the topic. So just wisdom, I guess, would be the main thing on getting into that topic and then speaking to it clearly and biblically uh, and calling people to faith in Jesus through it. Very good. And uh, are you still doing anything with uh, a podcast or video? Or are there other things you've got going media-wise? Yeah, there's supposed to be a podcast. Uh, once I, my hard part is like once I'm on the road and I talk for five or six hours during a day, the last thing I want to do is turn on a microphone. And uh, I don't mind doing this. This is easy. Like it, there's a, there's a huge gap for me. So like the way I'm wired, like I, I reference UFC, like boxing is radically different than UFC. Pulpit preaching is radically different than street preaching. And I feel wired towards interacting, not so much giving a monologue. So I'm not great at just wanted to turn on a microphone, talk to myself. Cause again, it, like my own psychology, it's probably a bizarro thing where I'm kind of like, do people really need to hear from me? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. So anyway, uh, I, I do have a YouTube channel that I hope to have more videos up on. I, I I'm trying to figure out a good way to record some of what's going on on campus. Um, that does not look like I'm trying to produce a show, if that makes sense. That's, mm-hmm. that's my main rub right now. So Keith Darrell on YouTube, campus preacher on Instagram. And then I do have KDCP or the campus preacher podcast that is under the fight, laugh, feast network. So if anybody in your church listens to the fight, laugh, feast network, um, I should be available on their platforms. Um, but <laughs> truth be told, I'm not that consistent in, uh, cranking out podcasts. Yeah. And you know, you might, 
people might just see you because their friends are students on campus and they're like, here's this crazy guy, you know, yeah. you're on people's Instagram or t- I don't, I don't know what the new, the video things are these days for. Yes. Yeah, I'm on the occasional TikTok, Uh, and then, uh, yeah, every now and then someone will send me a TikTok or they'll send me something on, uh, Instagram, uh, is, is kind of where, where every now and then I make it. But yeah. And if you have a student, uh, you know, a child or a friend that's on a college campus somewhere, uh, you want to reach out to me, I'll maybe even go to their campus and be like, Hey, they, they could use somebody there. I'll go and preach. And if I have loose contacts on campuses, those are kind of the best. Um, anytime I've tried to forge a relationship with a campus ministry, it always just kind of goes sour. But if I show up, preach, local guy hears me, he's like, Hey, I like what you're doing. I work for this ministry. Then next time through, I can contact him and I can point people back to his ministry. Um, sort of thing. So yeah, it's, it's, you know, ministry dynamics are strange, man. The, the, uh, the way people respond to you sometimes are, yeah, if I let it develop organically seems to go well, anytime I try to initiate and try to develop it too much, it doesn't. But anyway, if you have a kid on campus, uh, you can reach out and I'll, I'll even, you know, go to their campus and preach. And, uh, I've yet to find someone who just can't stands it. Like people are either in general, um, as people who have come out with me, because what they end up seeing is like, if you come out, or if you just see it for like a minute, so you see someone yelling at me, middle finger in my face, like, man, what is this guy doing? Um, but oftentimes that guy will come back at the end of the day or come back a week later, and he's a totally different ballgame. So in my head, it's a movie more so than a snapshot. And if you're just taking a snapshot of the day, I can see why people aren't excited about it. But I, in general, uh, I think if you get to see the movie play out and people come out and they're with me for four or five hours on a college campus and they're seeing everything that transpires during the day – you're like, man, that's real. It's it's real. It, it, it genuinely is insane. I can't believe people would st- sit there and listen to me for four or five hours. Like, um, do you have homework to do? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not anything. But they're skipping their classes. They're getting their lunch. They're coming back. And, uh, you know, and there are plenty of days, like I usually describe as a bell-shaped curve, where there, it's a zero. You can't buy a crowd for the life of you. And then you have a 10 where the police are like, hey, would you mind shutting it down? The ideal is to land between that four and six range is what I'm aiming for. But yeah. So anyway, all that say, if anybody ever wants to join me who hears this, uh, just reach out to me and I can tell you what I'm going to uh, be near you, uh, especially if I'm going to be in Oregon and Washington and uh, you're near a, a major state university, you can join me. Great. Well, we're planning to check in with you again in, in a few weeks and who knows where you'll be at that point. And hopefully you'll have some some good stories for us. Uh, Keith, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on.